Welcome, I'm Doc Fitz, and as you may know, I've spent the last 10 years of my life studying medicine and then sharpening my blade as a surgeon, and now I'm beginning a career in trauma, bringing my scalpel to the fight against violence. And I've also always felt an affinity for the underdog. Many of my friends, colleagues during this time have continued their work uh, in solidarity with marginalized and disenfranchised communities against the abuse of power and illegitimate authority. So, now I welcome you as I bring my knife to the gunfight. Today I'm excited to bring you two guests, two fellow Terrapins from the University of Maryland. First, Zane Alameen and I are going to talk about his trip to Standing Rock, North Dakota for Thanksgiving to join the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And then Gorv Madan and I will talk about the implications of this uh, indigenous struggles for the rights of land, not only in the United States, but throughout Asia and Africa. So stay tuned. The fog and the smog of the media that logs false narratives of gods that came up against the odds. Welcome back. Uh, this is Doc Fitz. I'm here with uh, my good friend and fellow Terrapin, Zane Elamin. So, uh, Zane, I, I called you uh, because uh, I know you came back recently from North Dakota where you were participating uh, and witnessing the protests around the uh, North Dakota Access Pipeline. Can you tell us uh, a little bit, uh, first of all, why did you decide to go all the way out to North Dakota from you know your home in, uh, in Washington, D.C.? Well, when I saw how the struggle is shaping up against the pipeline, and when I saw how uh, the water protectors there were broadening the fight to sort of having a, a more like a global approach to their fight, I felt it was important. It turns out that uh, I have Thanksgiving week off, so I thought it would be highly symbolic, of course, to to participate in direct action on Thanksgiving Day there. And so I went there for Thanksgiving uh, week. And I I really feel before going there and after that this is like the front line in terms of the struggles that we're going to have in the future with with Trump. Well, that, that is pretty incredible to spend Thanksgiving in Standing Rock in solidarity with uh, the Native American communities there. Can you tell us a little bit, what, uh, what did you experience? What was that experience like? Well, uh, the experience was one, uh, the, it was a spiritual one, and uh, because you cannot go there and not be spiritually engaged with the land, with the people, and especially when all the water protectors um, have spirituality as a guiding principle for their work. Direct action that we did on Thanksgiving Day was very well organized. Folks there are very well resourced. People have been sending them all kinds of stuff so that when we got there, we weren't told where the direct action will take place, and we were divided into four groups. One, uh, one group was activists from the East Coast, another from the West Coast, another from Northeast, and another from South. 
and somehow magically there was about 200 people uh, in each group and um, we basically locked arms and formed rows we had been trained the day before and um, as we marched we were flanked by horses to one side these horses descended from all the way from sitting bull their ancestors were on, on the battlefields of sitting bull there the, on the left hand side there were several white drones that were actually our drones that were scouting ahead of us for anybody that is connected or knows anything about native culture it's highly symbolic to have drones flying ahead and scouting for us but it was quite moving and it we moved in silence and we didn't know where we're going uh, i was in the middle rows so i didn't even know what was in front of me i could just see what was below me which was becoming muddier and muddier and about 20 minutes later we arrived at turtle island which was the point of action and turtle island has like a moat of water around it that needs to be crossed by bridge they put a makeshift bridge immediately it was built like in half an hour the pieces were just put in and some canoes were uh, deployed and there were people that were going into the high risk direct action there were 300 of them that went on the island at the top of the island which is basically a hill is uh, is a sacred cemetery on which stood policemen in full riot gear stomping around on the ancestors graves and they had all kinds of weaponry they had they had of course tear gas they had a water cannon and they had concussion grenade uh, launchers so and, that's uh, I'm, I'm sorry to stop yeah. you there but this comes up later no, the, no, no, no. the police uh, have been uh, basically denying that they used any kind of concussion grenades or any kind of explosive projectiles you witness you know concussion grenades that were being fired and exploding upon uh, impact no i i saw them they didn't deploy them on thanksgiving day i see because the first thing the police the chief of police knows that you know he was smart enough to know that using this weaponry on native americans on a day like that is is you know if Bad the sunday before which was they are getting in a lot of trouble for what they did the sunday before which we'll talk about later but they so they were uh, it seems like they were going to take a cautious approach mm-hmm. on that day unless people were going to charge the hill so how did um, that play out which they could have easily done because we were we ended up to be uh more than 800 we ended up to be about 2000 people there eventually mm-hmm. and uh the police force was understaffed that day there were maybe 50 50 policemen um but the elders put out a call and everything centralized with the elders uh put out a call not to charge the hill but to surround it and set up sacred fires and to do rituals etc their ceremony is part of everything there so if uh, the people the 300 people that mounted that small bridge and walked across where uh, they had to put fresh cedar leaves in their shoes and they had to be kind of 
doused in, in sage smoke before co- going across. And everything was done calmly as if there's nothing pointed at you from that hill. And it was a scary sight when you get there and when you know that what they are capable of doing after watching footage from the, the Sunday before that where all the violence happened. And by the way, it's really silly and stupid of anybody on the side of the police to deny these things. There's footage all over that went viral that, first of all, shows the deployment of water cannons, which they deny. They show the deployment of the use of tear gas, which they denied. And it also shows the remains of the concussion grenades, the depleted shells, etc. They're clearly all there. So there's ample photographic and video evidence of this violence. And I have no idea why would you deny something like this. You know, they're, they're, you know obviously, uh, you and I know that the police will deny these things, but to deny it in, in, the, in the face of so much evidence baffles me. So what else was going on there? Dance, there was prayers, and like these prayer circles that you, you couldn't film or record because of cultural co-option, sensitivity around cultural co-option. But you saw the elders sit around these sacred fires and occasionally they would advise people, but also people were like acting as if there is no police force up above them pointing their weaponry down at them. They would just walk up to the elders and ask them about a certain song they forgot and if they could remind them of it. So if it was as if nothing's happening, as if like, you know, we're having tea, you know. Uh, so I'm struck by the uh, the the level of organization. Uh, did Did you have a chance right. to to get a sense of how, you know, the the core organizers, the Native American communities of the Standing Rock uh, area were, were organizing, or was it additional tribes right. involved? What was that like? It was very organic. Uh, there were elders there that was. They were advising. They were, and uh, basically everybody listened. Nobody argued. You, you know, we on the left tend to bicker a lot about this and that sometimes, but action was swift, and people did listen to the elders. You know, there might be some disagreements among the youth at times, and they would voice these disagreements later. I mean, there was a couple of people that wanted to charge the hill, and the elders uh, asked folks like these middle-aged natives that were between the age of the elders and these youth that wanted to charge the, the hill to, to intervene and talk, talk them out of it. And they did talk them out of it, and they brought them down. So it was very disciplined, very organic, and very well equipped. So, for example, we got legal training. We, we signed waivers and everything. And uh, we had done the, our direct action training, as I mentioned. And the legal team is not just in the, located in the immediate area, but there is a pro bono lawyers and, and legal volunteers in neighboring counties in case there's an overflow. That's how well they're organized, you yeah. know. And, and I was, I'm also impressed by the level of solidarity. You, you mentioned that there's sort of people from the four corners of the country and from all over America, as far as South to South America. Right. 
I was also struck by, I don't know if you were there when the uh, veterans group came in solidarity that I understood was led by the son of the uh, the General Wesley Clark, Wesley Clark Jr.? Yes. So the they had announced the veterans, the 2,000 veterans had uh, d- done this GoFundMe page and they got over a million dollars in donations. Uh, so they got the resources to come from all around the country to uh, to to the camp, and they had announced this before the governor had announced an eviction date, which coincided with the arrival of the veterans. And later, the because of pressure around the country, because of good folks around the country calling and such, and uh, uh, because of the pressure, the local pressure at the grassroots level there. Uh, they backtracked about on this eviction notice. Uh, but the veterans arrived right before a blizzard started. And the first thing the veterans did is they went into a room where the tribal elders were th- were there. It's more like nations. The word nations is the more proper use rather than tribes. But the heads of these nations were there, the elders. And as as you might have seen the footage where they came in and knelt before the tr- the elders and begged their forgiveness for all the wars waged against indigenous people in the United States. And it was a very moving moment and there wasn't a, a dry eye in the house. I wasn't there for that, for that moment. Um, uh, but I saw the, the footage after, after I left, but yeah. their arrival was, was important because the, there was an announcement of uh, the, 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 you know, the change around the easement that the, the easement will not be permitted by the U.S. Army uh, as the Obama administration announced. You, you know, they could have done this. The Obama administration could have said this six months ago. But anyway, it was a, you know, it was a huge victory. And so it, what struck yeah. me about that process, it seemed that, you know, there was the violence that you mentioned sort of the week before um, you were there in which, uh, you know, there was, and this was an escalating going on for, for weeks, if not months, right? With people going to jail right. and getting shot with water cannons until one of the... Uh, dogs, the use of dogs, correct. et cetera, yeah. Uh, and then uh, one person, uh, Sophia Walensky, had a very serious arm injury that may end up with amputation related to the concussion grenades. Uh, and it, right. stru- it struck me that perhaps, the, interestingly, the vet- veteran solidarity was a, a way of these w- American warriors de-escalating this war against the t- Native American nations, understanding that their right. presence uh, could shield from violence, make you know, give the the private and state forces pause before escalating. Right. And uh, so, you know, you touched on that the sort of the culmination in that escalation was the Army Corps of Engineers refusing to grant the easement for the Dakota Access Pipeline. What does that really yes. mean from here moving forward? Is the project dead? Or will it have uh, be reincarnated? Uh, well, the, yeah, the, uh, the Energy Transfer Partners, the company that's building the pipeline, said this is nonsense. Uh, this is uh, Obama catering to a small sliver of the population for political gain or whatever, and we're going to ignore that and just continue uh, doing what we're doing. 
but the reality is they can't do, you know, the, what this order means is that they have to do an environmental assessment of the work. Now, whether Energy Transfer Partners want, is going to continue and defy these orders or not, it, it doesn't matter because from the information we know so far, is January is a month of actions in support of the stopping the pipeline. But January, and that's partly because January 1st is an important date because it is the date where the people that are the entities that are financing uh, this pipeline get to take a second look at what's going on and figure out whether they're going to continue their financing or not. It's a, it's a, a break in the contract to, to, to take a look at what's going on. Right. And the reality is January 1st was supposed to be the date that, that they actually finished the project. Hmm. So in other words, the reason why people celebrated and it was a victory is that energy transfer partners can't simply logistically, they can't up and start drilling under uh, the Missouri River right now because first of all, they're physically blocked. Secondly, they are, it's not that easy of a thing and they've been delayed so uh, so for so many days that they they won't be able to make it by that date. Hmm. Um, so there's there's a, actually a danger of the for them a danger of being defunded, the the the, the project being defunded hmm. at this point. You know. So that explains I've noticed around the country a series of actions against uh, Wells Fargo and other bankers that were backing this. Is that the idea? Is that the next escalation is to pull their funding? Absolutely. So, you know, people are have been asked to go to Wells Fargo if they have money to to uh, withdraw their money and to state clearly why they're withdrawing their money. And if they can also to record themselves as they're withdrawing the money. And that applies to Wells Fargo. It applies to TD Bank. It applies to Bank of America. And there's a list of 17 banks that people can target in that sense. And not just like withdrawing money, but picketing these banks mm -hmm. and doing direct action, such as was done in, in Minneapolis, where they forced Wells Fargo to, to the table to talk uh, after six activists uh, blocked the entrance for several hours that day. But even further, there's another important thing is Sunoco uh, was going to take over energy transfer partners, uh, buy out energy transfer partners. And Sunoco uh, will uh, have to be targeted in a sense of picketing them and doing direct action at Sunoco stations is also critical. God forbid that uh, Trump becomes president. What does that mean for this whole process? Do you have any sense of that? Or does anyone have any analysis? Well, CEO of Energy Transfer Partners is fully confident that Trump is going to overrule whatever he can overrule about the Obama administration's orders. But I don't think he can eliminate this environmental assessment that's been ordered r right now. But nonetheless, 
the work that has to be done under Trump still has to be done under, has been done under Obama. It's the idea of carrying that momentum from this victory into January 21st, into day one of the, you know, of the Trump administration. So the, even under Obama, uh, this company has acted with the collusion of uh, dozens, you know, over 10 police departments and different government entities uh, that have faced them with violence and incarceration and so on and so forth. Uh, in essence, they've gotten a taste of what could be the worst of Trump, too. So uh, the the work continues as president. They just feel that the work has to continue. It's, we know that that uh, Trump is going to go ha- after the the water protectors harder than the, um, uh, the Obama administration, but. The idea is not to confront people on the legislative level, but to confront this administration on the financial level, meaning go after harder after the financial institutions to make all the legal legality, all the legal uh, attacks and all the legislative attacks, et cetera, render them useless, really. So it's about defunding uh, the company. Well, I want to thank you, Zane, for bringing all that back from Dakota and sharing that with us. And uh, I'm going to be down in Maryland soon, so I have to catch up and have some tea. All right, my friend? For sure, for sure. One more thing before I let you go. I know amongst other things you do, you're something of a literary professor now. So I wanted to know if you could uh, share with us some book or some poetry that we might not have a chance to read otherwise. Um. In general, like in literature? Yeah, you know, you have a rich a history, a rich experience, yeah. and I want you to just share a little piece of that with me so I can go back and do my homework. Yeah. I lead the study abroad to Ireland every summer to read uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, which all takes place in Dublin, and we follow in the footsteps of the character uh, there for about 18 days, and then we celebrate with the rest of the Dubliners the book. Uh, I mean, the city celebrates the book itself on Bloomsday. What I want to suggest is not to read Ulysses, but to read the book that came out two years ago called The Most Dangerous Book, which is, uh, the subject sounds boring, but it's one of the most, it's probably the most thrilling nonfiction book I've ever read. And it's actually about the history of censorship uh, of the book Ulysses. And all the, you know, the feminists and the suffragist movement, the uh, Hemingway, Ezra Pound, everybody that came, all these authors and writers and celebrities that came in support of James Joyce. But it presents a history that we haven't understood or we haven't uh, been exposed to, rather. Uh, it's very thrilling and I, it's indescribable, but it's a great book. And it's it's a piece of history of the United States and a piece of literary history that's indispensable. Oh, thank you, Zane. I'll be sure to check that out. And uh, thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you soon. You're welcome. Take, right, take care. Trying to tell you about balance and your safety.
trying to isolate us in a dimension called loneliness, leading us into the trap, believe in their power, but not in ourselves, piling us with guilt, always taking the blame, greed chasing out the balance, trying to isolate Hello, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us. This is Doc Fitz, the knife at the gunfight. Uh, and I have here a good friend of the knife, Gorov, who always brings him a solid justice. Gorov, are you with us? I am, my man. Masala Justice in the house. So, thanks for joining us today. I know you're very busy. In fact, uh, you're in the airport, correct? On your way to India? I am, I am. So, tell us what's going on in India. Where are you going? On my way to Delhi right now, or in a few hours, where I will be supporting local community activists, social movement members, and larger civil society who are commemorating the 10th anniversary of India's Forest Rights Act this month. What is that, the Forest Rights Act? Can can you explain that to us? I'm not familiar. Sure. So the Forest Rights Act was passed in 2006, and it was a law that basically acknowledged that from the colonial time, the British colonial period, and perpetrated by the post-colonial government, that historic injustices were perpetrated against the indigenous people of India who are known as Adivasis or tribals and other traditional people who have been based in the forests of India and through different colonial policies, which want to essentially exploit the natural resources of the forest, have alienated these communities from their land. Um, the, the law recognizes their individual as well as collective rights, community rights, to protect, manage, and conserve the forests, which includes their rights to um, pursue their traditional livelihoods, pursue their traditional practices, religious, cultural practices. And a recent study actually done um, by the organization I work with, Rights and Resources Initiative, done last year, estimated a conservative estimate that if the law was properly implemented, about minimum 40 million hectares of forest land could be transferred to at least 150 million of some of India's most marginalized communities. And you were talking about uh, some other interests sort of exploiting that land and being a conflict with the people who live there. Can you be a little bit more specific? Who are we talking about or what interests are we talking about? Yeah, sure. And, And what you see in India is reflected broadly further in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, is that you have... The lands where generally communities, in the case of India, often many tribal communities, the lands that they've resided on for generations, is also the site of rich natural resources. And so you have this overlap of claims where either the government or private sector interests want to access the land or sometimes more importantly, the natural resources in or under that land where communities have been residing. And so this could be for infrastructure development. This could be for mining. This could be for energy plants, power plants, steel plants. And what you have is a conflict then of interests. And what the Forest Rights Act has said is that these people have, these communities have legitimate claims to this land. And before any of these other processes can take place, their claim should be settled. And there's a legal process in place where they can formally document and claim their lands, and that they receive formal titles. And when we're talking about titles, it's not necessarily just for individual property rights, but a larger community could claim a larger area and collectively own, manage, and govern that land. 
And what do you think is sort of the the expected, you know, outcome or corollary if if uh, these rights are respected as far as, you know, the communities in in terms of economic, social, cultural, political, etc. I mean, sure. So I think off the bat for those who whose hearts beat in that direction, there's obviously a direct correlation to human rights and there are international protocols for example, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, even in the Constitution of India, um, Indigenous Peoples, but even there's basic regard for human rights. But economically, there's also that if these people, these communities have rights to their land and their forests, then they're able to practice their traditional livelihoods, then they're able to actually earn an income, which is beneficial in terms of poverty alleviation, as well as for development. I think what you also see in terms of protecting forests is that in this larger issue that is not just facing rich communities or poor communities or rich countries or poor countries, but is actually facing the entire world is the challenge of climate change. And as we know, one of the main drivers of climate change is deforestation. Now, it's been proven and accepted worldwide from everyone from the World Bank to NGOs to international governments, the United Nations, is that when forests are in the hands, when they're controlled and managed by local communities, and they are protected much better than when they're in the hands of the state or private entities. And you see this from the Amazon um, to places in Africa to places in Asia. And so it's not just this idea of human rights, which of course are very, very important, but respecting community rights also has benefits for the environment, and it also has benefits in terms of conflict, which I think your your initial question was, which we've seen in India is land has been ceded or been granted to companies for, let's say, for example, mining interests. And there's a very famous example in eastern India, for example, of POSCO, which is a South Korean mining company that came in. And the land was signed over by the government and the community said, hold on, this is our land. We've been living on this land for for generations and no one has even asked us for our consent. And so a part of their resistance, which took a very public face, it was also using the Forest Rights Act and saying, you know, we have not gone through this documented legal process to claim our land. You cannot simply just displace us. And I think the days are gone in India where you can just easily forcibly displace people. So I think uh, people who are paying attention will hear, you know, echoes and common themes with our conversation earlier with uh, our good friend and fellow Terrapin uh, Zane and what's going on with the Dakota Access Pipeline in Standing Rock. Um, how do you think your work relates to what's going on uh, in North Dakota? No, absolutely. I think this is the same issue being reflected on the, in North America now, where you have indigenous communities who have legal rights to the land, who have sovereign rights to the land that are enshrined by both law as well as treaties, who have legitimate claims and who say they have, were not consulted in this process of where this pipeline was going to go. And so you have a lot of powerful interests, whether they be government or whether they be private sector interests. Because what we have to remember is that when it, we come to land and natural resources we're talking about, there's a lot of money to be made. And when there's a lot of money to be made, sometimes things like rights get swept under the rug. And when you're talking about often poor and marginalized people, then that happens in a much more accelerated way. And so what you have is something very similar where these communities were able to come together and say, hold on, this is our land. We have rights to this land. You cannot simply just take it from us. And I think the larger argument 
around the Dakota Access Pipeline. One, it was definitely about human rights, but it was also about climate change. And one of the things they were saying is that, should we be this dependent on fossil fuels? And also, what about our water? So this larger conversation about resources, human rights, justice, and consent. I think so often in parts of the world when these conversations happen, we talk about, oh, well, we'll just compensate you. We'll just compensate your land. And before we can even reach the topic of compensation, as a democratic society, we actually have to talk about consent. Have we received the consent of these communities who have been living there, who have been living there first? I mean, the struggle of the Dakota Access Pipeline you know, has been going on for many, many months, but one could easily argue it's been a struggle for the last several centuries. And this is a larger struggle that we see reflected all over the world. That's a very good point. Um, keeping that in mind, has have you know, has your organization been in contact and communication with uh, people in Standing Rock? Has there been any exchange uh, uh, related to those common themes? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this. I mean, not only have you know we've been supportive of this, but our organization is a larger coalition of indigenous people and local community organizations. Um, around the world. And what has been amazing, I think, that we've all seen is that how this struggle and what solidarity looks like, and you've seen indigenous groups in this country from all across this country come to Standing Rock and stand in resistance, but you've also seen indigenous groups from all over the world lend their solidarity. And so members of our coalition from Latin America traveled up I think they were from Ecuador and Mesoamerica traveled up to Standing Rock and even brought their traditional drums to beat in solidarity with the Indian tribes they're resisting. Well, and that's that's an interesting point. You know, I, I've heard it from several of the you know representatives of Native American groups in Dakota that this uh, what's going on there represents like the most unified. Uh, voice of solidarity amongst sovereign uh, Native American nations uh, really almost in any time in history in, in certain people's uh, estimations. Um, so I think that's a good point that it's a trans, you know, international transnational movement. What does that kind of solidarity really look like? What do you think the model is that we can stay engaged in, in what each other is doing and the struggles each other is facing? I mean, I think it's how we look at what this is, what the larger struggle is about as people on this planet. You have forces on this planet that are strictly interested in profit at all costs. And you have communities that have lived much more in harmony with the natural environment. And for those of us who perhaps live somewhere in between, it's not necessarily valuable to romanticize how these communities have lived with the natural environment and say, wow, you know, that that's so peaceful. But I think there is something there that we need to realize is that we cannot simply continue unfettered consumption without thinking it's not going to have an effect on all of us. And I remember hearing um, the Indian writer Arundhati Roy speak. And when she was talking about her interactions with indigenous people in India, she said, it's valuable maybe for us not to just look at these people as they represent one part of our past, but that they also might actually have the key to our future in terms of having a balanced relationship 
with the land, with the resources, and how we go about making decisions that in the end, in an age of destructive climate change and in an age for the need for climate change mitigation, decisions that are going to affect us all. That's a, a good point, Gaurav. Uh, but uh, how, how does this come back into the work you're doing, you know, this week in India? What's going on with the Forest Rights Act that makes this so relevant today? Sure. So like I said, I mean, December 2016 marks the 10th year, the 10th anniversary when this law was enacted. And that staggering potential holds the key to so much progress in India, whether it be for human rights, whether it be for climate change mitigation. Um, we're talking about at least 150 million people. We're talking about 40 million hectares of forest land. The unfortunate reality is that your researchers and activists on the ground who work very closely with these communities, by their estimates, less than 5% of this potential has been realized. And so I think this week is a moment to commemorate the progress of this landmark emancipatory law, but also take stock together with community members, with government leaders, with civil society to say, what can we do to address these bottlenecks, to address these challenges, to make sure India moves forward as a whole? And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, that there are parallels not only in North America and, and Asia that you're very familiar with, but also in Africa. Do you have uh, any, uh, any experiences that you want to tie in to, to, to explain that a little better? Sure. So I spent a year also working on the ground in Liberia in West Africa. And whereas there's a different history, you still have a very poor country, but that is very, very naturally rich. And you have a similar land rush in Liberia when it comes to natural resources. One of the biggest threats today, I think, in Liberia is the role of oil palm companies who are taking up land, community land, where communities have lived. I mean, Liberia has some of the densest and most beautiful rainforests in West Africa. And you have companies coming in and just clear-cutting these forests for agricultural plantation. At the same time, you have opportunities. You have dedicated civil society activists on the ground there. But also next month in January, when the legislature comes back, they will be sitting and hopefully passing the Land Rights Act, which is a piece of legislation in Liberia that would recognize community land rights. So, you know, despite, you know, very real threats, there are opportunities on the ground there as well. Uh, and one more thing before we let you go, uh, what uh, I'd like to share with uh, people I'm listening to, what music or what books am I reading? What's going on right now? So any albums or books you've uh, experienced recently you want to bring to our attention and make sure we check out? So as of like two weeks ago, Donald Glover, Childish Gambino's, his new album called Awaken My Love. It's a good blend of, I think, just soul and old school rock and roll and hip hop. And it's definitely captured my attention on repeat for the last couple of weeks. So I would also recommend that everyone check that out. I will do. You know, and, uh, of course, I'm sure everyone by now has heard the new Tribe album, which I, uh, uh, I've also fallen in love with. But I think what the voice I want to amplify when I have a chance today is the uh, Native American hip hop that's uh, found a bit of a, a mic out of the, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in North Dakota. Just a couple I want to bring to your attention include True Res Crew and uh, Red Cloud. Uh, they're not all, uh, you know, I don't think Red Cloud has a formal album, 
but uh, there's definitely some freestyles out there you should check out. I encourage you, and uh, I'll put some links. I'll put some links to that. Uh, uh, not only to those uh, albums we mentioned, that music we mentioned, but to your article as well. All right, man. Very so, cool. So thanks a lot for joining us at the gunfight. Hope you have a pleasant uh, and safe trip to India, and we'll catch you when you get back. Right on. Take care, my friend. When the sun is rising over streets so barren Since the evening, colors flash before my eyes I feel like a child so young and new in 92 I listened to what my father said Keep all your dreams, keep standing tall If you are strong, you cannot fall a voice inside our soul So smile When you can When you can Hillary Clinton won the recent election for American president by almost 3 million votes. However, perhaps partially due to the interference of Russian hacking, but mostly by a trick of the Electoral College, a vestige whose purpose was most clear as a tool of the three-fifths compromise, Donald Trump is more than likely to be the next president of the United States of America. This man is a fraud. Uh, He's recently settled for millions of dollars a lawsuit related to fraud from his Trump University franchise. He's boast about sexually assaulting women, He's embraced racists and fascists, such as David Duke and the American neo-Nazis, probably less because of ideology than expediency, as he seems to me to have no moral core. He plans to use the EPA to attack the scientific consensus around climate change and global warming, doing irreversible damage that future generations will have to pay for. He has embraced a foreign policy axis with Assad of Syria, Putin of Russia, and Duterte in the Philippines. He proposes to make the chair of America's largest oil company our next Secretary of State. His conflicts of interest are so vast and flagrant as to rival the height of post-Soviet Russian kleptocracy. One can only imagine how he plans to reward Putin for his meddling in the American election for president. In short, a Trump presidency would be an unmitigated disaster. Maya Angelou used to say, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Now is not the time to allow Trump to advance his agenda. Now is the time to stand up and fight back. Republican leadership has been more than willing to shut down Obama's government, deny routine judicial appointments, almost out of spite. The stakes are high and we owe the Trump administration at least as much resistance. The recount has now basically been shut down by judicial means. A constitutional crisis 
seems imminent no matter what happens and would probably be best before Trump is inaugurated president. In any case, our work is clear. To oppose every odious appointment, to double down on an agenda of peace, equality, and justice, and to make Trump's America ungovernable for him. And they fight dirty, so bring your knife to the gunfight. Thanks for joining me on the inaugural edition of Life at the Gunfight. Couldn't have done this alone, so I want to thank all those people who made this possible. Of course, Gaurav Madan and Zayn El Amin for spending their time with us, but also those who gave me uh, advice and guidance, Roxanne O'Connell and Terrence Williams, among others. Uh, and just so you know, the musical selections you listen to during the podcast, uh, which will all be available uh, with links on my Twitter account, the handle SlyFitz, S-L-Y-F-I-T-Z. Uh, we started off with We the People by A Tribe Called Quest. Next one was John Trudell's Look at Us. Third one was Stand Tall by Childish Gambino. And we're going to close you out on a song by Natani Means called The Radical. Natani Means is uh, akin to Russell Means, who is a founder of the American Indian Movement. And if you're not familiar with that history, as uh, Immortal Technique would say, look that shit up, figure it out, and we'll talk about it later. Thanks again. Hope to see you next time. The militant minded, confined him inside a sign confinement. Picture the best Park and Nas combined with Russell and Dennis at an AIM protest. Uh, check it, I grew up tough. Underneath barbed wire cuts If my stars ain't enough to tell my story All these other rappers are mediocre Starting to bore me Melodic said until you break to fully feel freedom My grandma named me not on Inez for a reason So I could lead them free your minds from extinction And believe in freedom <laughs> Throw that government money back Cause we don't need them Sovereignty's a myth in a nation full of ignorance I've seen checks get spent on casino chips And I wear my hair proud This is true pride music War hooping loud Equivalent to the American Indian movement Yeah Yeah Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Yeah Can you hear me now? Uh. Alright I'm not a rapper, I'm an activist who rhymes This is how you're learning, you better read between the lines Kill the Indian, save the man Yes, all my friends descended from dead men Who defended them? I got two braids and a beaded necklace Living young and living reckless Got a bullet for the next hipster in a headdress Step aside, I got that C4 flow I'm ready to blow at any minute Motherfucker, let me go I flow off the mental with the cynical syndrome The epitaph, I'm wreaking wrath at the pinnacle Fuck methodical, I keep this shit simple I got the point at the top to pop the pimple Sinful, I get erotic like a nympho Keeping it loose, hanging rappers on the noose I don't spit, I puke You rappers ain't shit, but your flow's still equivalent to poop
colonial colonized man in Russell, Maine. I want to talk a little bit about radicalism and being called radical. You know, maybe it is true I am a radical because all I've ever asked, all I've ever demanded, all I've ever fought for, all I've ever been shot for, all I've ever been stabbed and beaten for, or thrown in jail or prison for, is to ask and demand any way, shape, or form that the United States of America live up to its own laws. Identity, searching in bottles of whiskey. I've seen my elders pass out under oak trees. Hairspray and methamphetamine feed their arteries. Empty memories shield the future possibilities As suicidal tendencies tend to plague the youth at a teen age In teen pregnancy we say leaves babies with no fathers these days And our ways are forgotten, forgotten Trading moccasins for N7s with Jordan socks that are cotton Shit Free your mind from extinction